In the last 10 years, our field has gone from an unknown specialty to a household name. This brings unprecedented opportunities, but we need to rise up to meet them and give our patients the care that they deserve. In order to help others get better, we need to be better. This podcast will help you to become more confident with your patients, more successful in your practice or business, and a leader in pelvic health. And we're going to have some fun along the way. Join us as we rise together. We're Jesse and Nicole Cozine, founders of Pelvic Sanity Physical Therapy and the creators of the Pelvic PT Huddle. And this is Pelvic PT Rising. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Pelvic PT Rising Podcast with Jesse and Nicole Cozine. Hey Nicole. Hello. It's not often we get to say we have breaking news on this podcast, but I think we do. We kind of do, and it's really exciting, and we are today are going to be talking about the updated version of the American Urological Association, which is kind of a big deal because this is being recorded in May of 2022, and the last time that these AUA guidelines were updated was 2014, and even that one was not that different from the guidelines that were updated in 2011. Yep, so that gives you the brief history of the AUA guidelines by the American Urological Association, or AUA. We're going to be throwing some of those acronyms around today, but 2011, 2014, and now May 10th of 2022. And so this one is actually a little bit bigger of a change than the last update that they had. Previously, there was a lot of stuff that had been in tiers, so they had done things organized as tier one through six. They've gotten rid of that and have reorganized it, and there's a couple of cool things in here, but I want to talk a little bit about why this is important, Nicole, because this is, I mean, obviously something you and I care deeply about. We wrote the book, The IC Solution. You have a course on IC. It was the first in-person course that you taught. Like, this is obviously your jam. Why is this so important? Well, I think that before we had what Jesse called tiers, or they technically called them lines of treatment. And I think where it was a little bit frustrating was that we knew that interstitial cystitis was not solely a bladder condition. In fact, it's more of a chronic pelvic pain condition. And so when we as pelvic floor physical therapists were in the first line of medical treatments, we were technically on line two. And line one was all of behavior modifications and stuff like that. But we were also globbed in with a bunch of other urology-based treatment strategies. So physician-based treatment strategies like bladder-centered treatments and oral medications. And it basically made us not prioritize, not be prioritized in that second line. We got lost, I feel. And even though we get an evidence grade of A, pelvic floor physical therapy gets an evidence grade of A on the guidelines. And that still is happening now, but it got lost because we were in, globbed in with all of these other pharmaceutical and procedure-based things. And frankly, it was confusing to patients. So the fact now that these lines of treatment or tiers of treatment are gone, that actually allows us, in in my estimation, a lot more ability to have ownership over the entire management of the condition, which I, I really believe that we're uniquely qualified to do with our specialty and the way that the pathophysiology of the condition is. Yeah, I think that's the big 
point there, Nicole, is that we have to know the rest of these things because you can't quarterback your patient's care. You can't be the manager if all you're doing is saying like, well, all I know is the pelvic floor stuff, so you need to go back to your urologist anytime you have a question. It's like, well, it's your own urologist who went through all of these treatment things that don't really work, who didn't recommend physical therapy, and doesn't really know what the hell they're talking about. So if we want our patients to get better, we actually have to know what are the options out there so that you can help guide their care. Now, a couple of things in these guidelines that we're really particularly excited about, because these are things that Nicole has been advocating for for the last five years. And in some cases, these are like literally cribbed right off of what she's been saying. So this is really, really good news. First thing, pelvic PTs stop doing Kegels with chronic pain and particularly IC patients. Yeah, this is something that I've been preaching for quite some time. And I think in some ways... I know that there is some resistance to that. I understand. Actually, I don't really understand, but I see out there there's a lot of resistance to that sentiment, especially if you consider, I hear a lot of people, Nicole, well, I don't really do Kegels. I only do that. I have them do a contraction so that they can feel the relaxation. And my challenge to you now, especially now since we have our pelvic floor physical therapy, I see experts saying no Kegels with chronic pelvic pain conditions like I see. Now we have the AUA jumping on that bandwagon saying, please do not do this. It's because we have literally heard of thousands of patients. Do you know how many emails I get you guys from people that says, I went to pelvic floor physical therapy and all they gave me was Kegels and I'm now worse. My symptoms are worse. That has exacerbated my symptoms. And so if you have that that urge to do pelvic floor contractions with your patients with, with interstitial cystitis, you have now two big, huge reasons why this is very much contraindicated. Even in the, oh, I'm just trying to get awareness for relaxation, that is not how the mechanism of pelvic floor muscle tension works with people with chronic pain and spasm. I want you to think of it more as autonomic tone, okay? It is the result of sympathetic nervous system upregulation, protection of faulty brain-bladder connection, and that is the reason. Doing something voluntary, reverse kegeling, kegeling to relax, All of that should be taken 100% off the table because those muscles are already tense and tight, not necessarily because of a muscular basis, but because of a neurological sympathetic nervous system upregulation state. So you are going to have way better effectiveness of getting that pelvic floor to relax and lengthen if you address that autonomic nervous system upregulation. So Now, you have pelvic floor physical therapy IC experts saying this. You have the AUA saying this. And so if I freaking hear any more patients coming to me and saying that my I got went to pelvic floor physical therapy and I did Kegels and I got worse, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I'm going to have a conniption. I think I'll just quit. I'm going to just quit. (laughs) Pelvic PT altogether if I hear another one person say that. Some of you might be surprised that we, as I feel like pretty staunch defenders of the autonomy of the pelvic health and pelvic PT field, are happy that another organization who doesn't know, as Nicole would say, shit about shit, is weighing in on actual treatment techniques. Because let me actually read what the guideline says. So they say, 
Appropriate manual physical therapy techniques, e.g. maneuvers that resolve pelvic, abdominal, and or hip muscular trigger points, lengthen muscle contractures, and release painful scars and other connective tissue restrictions, if appropriately trained clinicians are available, should be offered to patients who present with pelvic floor tenderness. Pelvic floor strengthening exercises, e.g. Kegel exercises, should be avoided. Evidence grade A. Yeah, and that is an evidence strength grade of A. The interesting thing in here, the other win that I think we should take away and the other thing that you need to take away from this if you are treating patients with interstitial cystitis, that it says maneuvers that resolve pelvic, abdominal, and or hip muscular tender points. Now, we can dissect this language exactly, but the fact of the matter is, is that they are now understanding finally that it is not just about the pelvic floor. It is about the entire pelvic floor as it functions in that system and that there's pelvic, abdominal, hip, muscle trigger points, painful scars from either in the abdomen or from other surgeries and or at the perineum and other connective tissue restrictions. That means pelvic floor PTs and OTs that you have to look outside of the pelvis in order to get the thoroughness of the evaluation and treatment that an interstitial cystitis patient deserves. It now says it in the guidelines. I've been saying it for literally 16 years. And now, and we have to pay attention now because it's not just about the pelvic floor. So this is a big win for patients. This is a big win, hopefully for urologists who now are going to, hopefully, again, if they're reading their own guidelines, which is always a little bit of a stretch, they should know who they're referring to. And hopefully they're using this as a criteria to say, ooh, should I be referring patients to this physical therapist? And I think they, one of the things that's interesting here, right, is they're saying appropriately trained clinicians. Like they are recognizing the value of appropriately trained clinicians, that it's not the same as a standard get somebody back from having a baby, like appropriately trained in treating chronic pelvic pain. And I love that they are looking at this and you guys might be expecting us to feel some kind of way about another specialty in another profession, basically telling us how to do our jobs. But I think the sad part is, is they're right. And for a long time, this hasn't been the way that this has been treated, at least for in a lot of places. And for patients, if we really think about that's who this is for, I'm really glad that patients are reading that and understanding what they should expect and not expect out of physical therapy. It's really giving power to patients, to urologists, and hopefully back to us in the physical therapy world. And then if you dissect that that phrase in that treatment category a little bit more, basically anybody that has suspected interstitial cystitis with quote-unquote pelvic floor tenderness, which could also just be translated to just pelvic pain, should be referred to a pelvic floor PT slash OT. So that is what needs to be happening per the guidelines now. So we still have the challenge, like Jesse mentioned, of getting the urologist to actually read these guidelines. But I think, I really do think now that having the medical lines sort of gone from the guidelines are now helping us and helping everybody to get patients to where they need to be better instead of looking through this hierarchical thing where we were just getting skipped over because there were so many medical interventions that the doctors could just go to with kind of ignoring and pushing on the back burner physical therapy. And now the way that this is now sort of structured, I really feel like 
it's time to even more so than we have been jump on owning that entire category. Yes. And I want to get to the changes in the structure in a second, but two other changes in these guidelines that we've really been pushing for that I would like to just highlight. The, so the first one was saying, actually explicitly saying Kegel should not be prescribed for IC patients. Another one is no mention of the quote unquote IC diet, which as you know, hopefully from a longtime listener of this podcast, the IC diet is a myth. No matter how many patients walk into your door saying, I'm following the IC diet, there is no such thing. The AUA guidelines specifically call out an elimination diet, which is the gold standard of care, which is what we've been preaching, which was what we wrote in the book six years ago. Um, which is new. Remember, you guys, yes. that is new. The actual mention of an elimination diet was not in any version of the previous AUA guidelines, which is a big freaking deal. Yes. So we've been pushing this for a while. And, and the lack of knowledge about what that was, what an elimination diet is and why it's so important is one of the reasons that this myth of the IC diet was perpetuated. And for those of you guys who aren't as familiar, you need to take Nicole's IC course, but... Basically, there is a list of foods that people have self-reported, so completely non-scientific, that was accumulated by the ICA, the Interstitial Societies Association, and that people are now taking as gospel. So it's a list that basically says, well, if anybody has ever reported that this was a trigger food for them, it goes in this red category. And now patients are freaking out that they can't eat any of their favorite foods, when in reality... Some people aren't even diet sensitive at all. The vast majority of people are sensitive, but only to a very small number of things. But they get this quote unquote icy diet and they're thinking, oh my gosh, it's chicken and rice for me for the rest of my life. So in summary, that is a big deal that that is specifically now mentioned in the AOA guidelines because before it was just like, oh yeah, they should talk about diet. And, and it was like, well, that doesn't help. The other cool thing about this, you guys, is that remember, as physical therapists, we can talk to patients about nutrition. And yes, that does mean that sometimes if somebody has a complex medical history, comorbid conditions, a lot of diet sensitivities and or food allergies, we might need some extra help in that way. But just like anything else, we have the ability to start off patients and counsel them on an elimination diet. And then if either we're confused about the results of that or whatever, then we can refer on to another specialty if we deem that that's necessary for and the best for the patient. So, But that is something that is very relatively simple that we can start with and also start educating patients that it there is no such thing as the IC diet and this is the guidelines now that we do have to talk about an elimination diet. And frankly, if you're talking about anything else but that, y'all need to watch yourself. Yes. The third one that we're really excited about, and this one is, this was a little bit bittersweet mixed one for me, but is they have put in significantly more information about Elmeron. Elmeron, again, for those of you guys not familiar, is the only oral medication that is approved for IC. It is also something that is it's given ubiquitously by urologists because of that fact. It's also something that multiple studies have shown does not work at all. And multiple studies have shown causes blindness when used for a long period of time. Not in every patient, but and a lot of that information has come out. The, the side effects have actually come out since the last guideline. But in the last guideline, there was no mention of the fact that 
basically of the five trials of Elmeron, two showed that they, it was slightly effective for like one third of people max. Two of those studies showed that it wasn't any more effective than a placebo. And one of those studies, the biggest one, was stopped because it showed zero effectiveness at all at any dosage over a placebo at all. So for those of you guys keeping score at home, that was three studies that showed that it didn't work, two studies that showed that it barely worked, and it was given an evidence grade of B and thrown into the guidelines as a in basically the first line of medical care. And patients were left thinking, like, why isn't Elmeron working for me? Oh, and by the way, this is like the biggest hoax ever done by a medical thing. I can't actually believe they got away with this. But they say, basically, this thing will start working sometime between 6 and 12 months from now. So if you notice any changes in the next year to two years that you're on this drug, it's because of the Elmeron. Which I have no idea how they managed to get people to actually believe that. Because obviously there are just fluctuations that happen. So of course, if you just take some, I mean, if you take a freaking multivite gummy for two years, you're going to notice some changes. Oh my God, that that made my hair gray. For better or worse, yeah, right? I no mean, kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, that is crazy. So the good news here is that they explicitly put that into the guidelines. Which so, again, was not there before. Right. So they only had reported the positive studies in the guidelines. Now they actually report four of the five studies in these guidelines saying that two show a positive benefit and two show no benefit at all. They put specific warnings about the eye damage associated with long-term Elmeron use. What they don't do, which is crazy to me, this is the bittersweet part, is they don't adjust the B grade that they gave it. Yeah, and Wait, who so, knows? <laughs> and, like, let me get this straight here, because this is I, I got to go on this little rant. Let's just say that you were taking tests in school, and you passed the first two tests, and your grade in that class was a B, and then you failed miserably the next two tests. All right? And then... You didn't even complete the fifth test because you were doing so badly. You tore up your paper and you walked out the door. And the professor looked at you and said, well, you're going to get that B. What the actual fuck? Yeah. Like, that is crazy. So that is, I don't know, rant over with that. That's mind-blowing to me that it's still given a B grade. Oh, and by the way, this doesn't even fit into my analogy at all. But by the way, now that you're done with this class, you're blind. <laughs> but yeah. that's a B. Okay. Yeah, we I don't understand that. I mean, I'm sure there's some politics and money in that. I'll speculate that. But so, but we all know and we now have evidence and it actually does say, which is which is, makes it even that big, much bigger of a deal that they actually do say where it doesn't work and it's no better than placebo and all of that jazz. But that is something that now we have a another Backup to we can talk to patients about that. Yes, it is in there. No, it is not necessarily better than placebo. Yes, it has been correlated with freaking blindness at a dose dependent relationship. So if you have a urologist that is just giving Elmeron at high doses, then you at least can have now ammo for your patient to go back and ask them, like, hey, what the hell? Should I be on this? Yes or no? Yes. And then with our non-behavior and pharma non-pharmacological treatment section, then we should be, well, there, now we have an evidence grade of A for that. And we can also help you with all of those other things in that category. So let's dive into what the big change in structure was that they made. So instead of putting these things in lines or tiers, what they've done is actually created four major categories here. And so there's the behavioral slash non-pharmacological category. 
which is where physical therapy fits along with a lot of the other things. There's also things like oral medications, bladder installations, and procedures and major surgeries are the categories that they put things in now. And so I think this is really cool because it gives, basically it gives physical therapists, and this was not acknowledged in the last version of the guidelines, but it gives physical therapists an entire category of these, and I would argue by far the most important category of these, that you can take ownership of. Because the things in this behavioral slash non-pharmacological grouping are public floor physical therapy, which is still the only treatment in any of this that is given an evidence grade of A. Nobody else has changed in their evidence grades at all in this new guideline. But it also includes education, normal about normal bladder function. And this is where Nicole was getting. They also specifically say it should include education on the benefits versus the risks of different treatment options. Well, who is the person who is most likely able to do that? That is us in the physical therapy world. Right, because we have the most time, we have the most knowledge about the complexities of the condition, especially when you consider that interstitial cystitis, remember you guys, is not a bladder condition. It's a chronic pelvic pain condition. And so we are the best ones to be managing that. It also in that section talks about self-care practices, behavior modifications, and it also, and this is the probably one of the biggest ones, that it says patients should be encouraged to implement stress management practices to improve coping techniques and manage stress-induced symptom exacerbations or flares. Now, what the AUA guidelines is missing in that is that that can seem that it's just like, oh, yes, handle your stress, calm down, right? But what we know as the really awesome practitioners that we are is that we're educated in pain science. And we know that quote unquote stress management also equals sympathetic nervous system upregulation help. So we can help patients with the autonomic response, the threat response, the sympathetic nervous system upregulation, the physical stress management of the condition. Patients how their brain is processing pain, how the brain-bladder connection is a problem with patients with interstitial cystitis. So, And then also, in addition to, we can help them to decide whether or not they have a history of trauma that needs to be addressed. We can refer them to mental health practitioners if that needs to be happening, cognitive behavioral therapy to help with their cognitive distortions around what it is to have this chronic condition. But what we need to take ownership of with that section on the patients need to be encouraged to implement stress management practices is the pain science role and education that we can take and the actual interventions that we can do with the downregulation of the nervous system with vagus nerve activation strategies, as well as figuring out the why behind why this the body is perceiving threat in this way that's manifesting as bladder symptoms. Yes. And so that is the benefit of these new guidelines. That is the challenge that these new guidelines pose because it is putting more responsibility on the physical therapy community. Like you have a whole category of this, the most important category of this that you are taking ownership of or should be. And hopefully that is exciting. Hopefully that is something that you're eager to do and to dive into If not, I hope that that is because you are not feeling confident in your understanding of the condition and overall management of it. 
That is, shameless plug here, but where Nicole's IC course comes in, where you're learning about physical therapy techniques, about manual physical therapy, about demonstrations on live patients, on models. How to talk to patients about diet, how to talk to them about the medication options that they have, when they should implement that, how they should talk to their urologist, when they should implement a pain management person. Like all of that is owning that behavioral slash non-pharmacological treatment section. And now we have this whole category in the AUA that basically validates our entire profession (laughs) and our entire specialty in, in the treatment of people with interstitial cystitis or suspected IC. So overall, I really think that this is a good change for us if we continue to take ownership of it. Yep. A challenge to rise to here. So, guys, if you have questions about that, we'll put the link to that course in the show notes. We'll put a link to the new guidelines if you want to skim through them. The overview will only take you like five minutes to read if you want to take a look at it and educate. And just it's something that we need to, if you're treating this population, you just need to know. You need to have an idea about the breadth of all of the options and how to to break these down for your patients because they really are trusting you to be the one who's looking at this with a critical eye and saying, do I really need to be on this drug? Do I really need to be doing these installations? Are there other options there? And being able to give them the guidance as they go through that. The other thing as we wrap up, just announcement-wise, you guys have probably heard that we have opened another cohort to our Pelvic PT Rising Business Mentorship Program. That is filling rapidly. We've got 25 spots in there. Those are just about filled, which is I mean, honestly, thank you guys so much. It's really cool for us to see all of the interest out there. So many of you guys are doing this, are building businesses that you can be proud of, that in treating the way that you want to be treating. And it's just really exciting for us. And so if you guys are still interested in that, there is still time. Feel free to go ahead, go to pelvicptrising.com slash mentoring. Mentoring is the verb. Or you can go to pelvicptrising.com slash business if that's too difficult. Fill out that entrepreneur survey and application, and we will get back in touch with you if you're interested. But those spots are going very quickly. I think we've had 22, 23 of them already snatched up. So, yeah, that's it I've got for uh, announcements. Okay, so real quick, let's summarize in rapid fire the three major things that were biggest changes with the AUA guidelines. They specifically uh, say that Kegel exercises should not be, be prescribed They have language in there now with the elimination diet and take out any language of just regular IC diet. We are now in a behavioral and non-pharmacological category um, where they specifically state that manual pelvic floor physical therapy techniques should be implemented. The evidence grade of A still exists and we are still the only thing on the entire guidelines with an evidence grade of A. There is no hierarchy anymore about line one, line two, line three. There's just categories of which we need to take ownership of the behavioral and non-pharmacological treatment category for the entire thing because all of the other categories are physician-based. So that's it. We should be excited about this. You should be really, if there's anything that you want to learn about IC, we got the resources for you and that's it. Guys, well, as always, if you have any questions about this, if you want to discuss, we always want to keep this conversation going. And let's continue to rise. Rise.